welcome back to the Coaches Rising podcast. I hope this finds you well. We've got a special episode today because we're going to release a conversation that took place in our membership program last year between Amanda Blake and John Viveki. And they're going to be talking about cognitive science for e-cognition and how that applies to the work we do as coaches. We thought it was such a great conversation. We wanted to bring it to you all. And so they'll be talking about, as I said, 4E cognition, from perception to meaning-making, embodied self-awareness, reciprocal narrowing and opening, lots of cool concepts that I think that are very enlightening. And at a few points in the conversation, Amanda will refer back to things she was teaching in a, in a session prior to this one, but I don't think that will impact your learning experience in this. It's just packed full of great content. So if you haven't heard of John Viveki, he is cognitive science professor at the University of Toronto and he's published a 50-part lecture series on YouTube called Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. Amanda Blake is a regular teacher with Coaches Rising. She's a world-leading expert on this crossroads where embodiment, neuroscience and coaching meet and I highly recommend her book Your Body is Your Brain. So, that all being said, thanks for listening. Let's dive in now. Here is the conversation between Amanda Blake and John Viveki. So welcome to this first conversation at the edge. We are in uh, Tapestry, this membership program that we've created. And I always just love being on gallery view to start this off and just looking at your your beautiful faces. It's been a while since I've done this, so I'm like, whoa, like uh, excited and uh, a little bit nervous, but um, uh, it's really good to be here. And so we're going to dive in really fast. Um, maybe I can just say a little bit about, because this is the first conversation at the edge, why we decided to create these, and then I'll introduce our guests, and then we'll we'll start the conversation. Um, so... Yeah, um, for me, I'm really passionate about these conversations and how we can bring in not just um, coaches, people working within the field of coaching, but also people from related fields from outside of the field of coaching. I, I just, I used to have this analogy. I remember I DJed drum and bass. And when I first started DJing drum and bass in the nightclubs in the 90s, it was really innovative and it was it was being influenced by all these different types of music. And then at some point they just stopped doing that and it became, you, you felt it, you felt the life drop out of it. And so um, that's why we want to bring in people like John, who's a cognitive scientist and a brilliant thinker so that we can, and, and Amanda too, you know, who is also brilliant and we're very familiar with her from the first two sessions um, but that we can have a living conversation. And I was just saying to Amanda and to John before that my uh, deepest wish is that actually these conversations can be part of the evolution of the field of coaching. You know, that they're, they're not, it's not just that we're here, um, you know, absorbing facts and information, but that actually something can emerge from between us as a community of practitioners, but also as, uh, as these minds come together, something can emerge, which then informs us and we take that away with us. So that's really what these conversations are about. And in the, you know, we're going to connect things back to this topic of surfacing the invisible, uh, which Amanda has been taking us through beautifully. All right. So let me introduce the first two speakers that we have. 
in conversations at the edge. So um, I'll, say, I'll start with John because we've met Amanda, but I'll introduce her too. But so John is the director of cognitive science at the University of Toronto. He has published a lot of articles on cognitive science and, and meaning. Uh, that's a topic we're going to go into today, or both those topics. And he's the author of Zombies in Western Culture and also created the series Awakening from the Meaning Crisis on YouTube, which is just an incredible uh, creation. Uh, if you haven't checked that out, I really strongly recommend you, you just follow up on all these um, you know, things that John's created. But it's it's really such a. I think it, you'll you'll get through this conversation today why this work is is so pertinent to these times, and and uh, Amanda Blake, uh, who you will have been introduced to in the last calls. She's just such a long term collaborator with Coaches Rising, and and we for a, for a good reason. We just love what she brings. Just this brilliance in in connecting the latest discoveries in neuroscience to to real effective coaching. Uh, she's a coach herself and of course the author of your body is your brain so um, hopefully today I won't be doing that much you know I'm gonna I've got questions prepared but uh, I've just said to John and Amanda hey you know you feel free to ask each other questions and um, yeah we'll see where it goes so let's dive in let's dive in so um, I think I want to come to you first John and and sort of ask you, in a way, a big question, which is, you know, how does the field of cognitive science view the self? And in particular, you know, how the, the, our bodies and brains are, are in relationship with one another and how that might contrast with, you know, older views of how we used to see the self. And the, perhaps that'll take us into a conversation around what cognition is and four, four E's and different types of knowing yeah well thanks joel and uh it's great to be here and to meet all of you um you're on my big screen tv so it's even more imposing uh, and a little bit uh, <laughs> a little bit anxiety producing but uh hopefully um uh, i'll be able to uh, be present with you um so i belong to i mean i, I teach cognitive science i'm the director of the cognitive science program um, at the University of Toronto, uh, which has been quite influential in the history of cognitive science. Just a quick idea about what cognitive science is before I answer Joel's question. Um, so I, uh, 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 cognitive science addresses this problem, which also goes to Joel's problem, uh, Joel's question, which is um, we have this term, we have terms like mind and self. Uh, let's just go with mind first. And we think we know what we're talking about, but we face a very serious problem around it, uh, which is we have different disciplines that talk at different levels using different methodologies. Uh, so we have the neuroscientists, when they hear mind, they think brain, and they'll do fMRIs and dense EEGs and other technologies, and they'll talk about neurons, and they'll talk about uh, neural networks, et cetera. And, 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 and that's good and valuable, but, then you'll have people who work in machine learning and they don't talk about brains. They talk about, you know, learning algorithms uh, and they talk about uh, a different kind of neural network that's not the same as what the neuroscientists are talking about. And, and they don't do fMRIs or EEGs. They make machines and then they test them. So they have a different language, different level they're talking about. 
and I, what, I, what, I, what, I, what I'm trying to get you to see is that this is like different countries speaking a different language. And then above that, uh, there's um, psychologists, and I'm also teaching the cognitive psychology program at U of T. I'm also a psychologist. And we don't we talk about brains a little bit, and we talk about machines a little bit, but mostly we talk about behavior. And what we do is we run experiments, do stats on it. And we talk about things like working memory and long-term memory, and we're not, all right? And we're different language. And then we've got, you know, people thinking about the mind in terms of what's happening right now. Uh, you know, there's noises coming out of my face hole and you're getting ideas in your mind and like, what's going on there? How does that possibly work? Well, and there's deep connections between language and the mind. And so these are linguists and they do different things. They get people to judge sentences and they talk about tree structures. And then there's the cultural anthropologist who says mind, well, mind's about meaning making and meaning making requires culture and they're going to do participant observation, ethnography. So they're all talking about something different, but supposed to be the same. And they're talking at different levels with different languages. Now, the problem with that is that really fragments us in a profound way. It really fragments us. So when Joel asked me, well, what's the mind of the self? I can give you right there five totally different answers. And what's the right one? Well, and, and then I'll say something that's sort of pseudo Zen. They're all right. And well, what does that mean? And how is that helpful? So what does a cognitive scientist do? Well, a cognitive scientist does something sort of helpful, I think. I believe it. I've dedicated my life to it. So I hope I turn out to be right about this. Um, what we try to do is we try to make use of a discipline that has been for millennia trying to get different ways of talking, different levels of discourse and analysis coordinated together, and that's philosophy. I don't think of philosophy as sort of sitting around in a cafe saying sort of vaguely obscure things. I think of philosophy as precisely the task of trying to build, you know, theoretical grammar, conceptual vocabulary that bridges between these disciplines so that fragmentation is overcome and we're not equivocating between these different meanings. And so we're constantly trying to get the various disciplines to talk to each other in a mutually informing and transforming way. And so cognitive science is that in that sense, a very rigorous big picture project. It's trying to come up with the big picture that nevertheless respects all these different forests and see how they fit together. And now cognitive science has gone through th three generations trying to answer the big question, the big picture question of what is the mind, what is cognition? Now, the first generation was a computational model. That's a pretty standard model. And the model looks something like this. There's sensation that comes in. It goes somewhere into my mind, my brain, where there's something like a computer that does the processing, and then that generates the action. What's happened was there's been a revolution throughout the 90s, and it's what sort of is driving a lot of the success in AI right now, which got to second generation CogSci, which is you're not really a computer. Right, that most of your cognition is actually not operating like a language, like a computer. What, you, what your, your cognition is operating in a much more what's called neural network fashion. And I won't go into the details because we don't need to stop there. Because that was, it, that was just a transitional stage into in which called third generation CogSci, which is the idea, this idea, that your cognition isn't in your head. And I hope that's provocative for some of you. It's like, oh no, he's gonna start saying that, you know, there's weird spirits or crap like that. That's not what I'm talking about. 
there's a different model. And let me try and compare it to the old computational model. And instead of a computer, think of there being a, a dynamical self-organizing system running on your brain. And what is that doing? Well, it's this idea. What it's doing is it's constantly shape, it's from its end, it's trying to shape the sensory motor loop. Notice how we're getting motion in here right now, right? The sensory motor loop. So it's the idea is whenever a, an organism is seeing, like right now I'm seeing this pencil, it's not sensation, passive receptive, computation, and then action. Instead, what's happening is the organism is constantly moving. And as it's changing its sensations, it's moving. And then that's causing new sensations, which cause new motion and the set, right? And so action and it's not action. It's not perception, then action. It's perception in action, action in perception. And why is the organism doing that? The organism's doing that because to see this is to actually get involved in a bunch of trade-off relationships. I can maybe want to, maybe I want to be close to see the details. Maybe I want to be far away from it to see the whole thing. Maybe I want to move it around to see the different ways and the different angles. Maybe I want to move around it as it's moving around. What I'm trying to get you to see is how inherently inactive, E-N, not I-N, inaction, how, much, how inactive cognition is. It's between me and the object. I'm dynamically coupled to the object. And so that's called, that, that, that's typically described in terms of what are called four E's. I think Amanda's maybe talked to you about that or not. This is the idea that cognition is inherently embodied, right? I'm a self-organizing thing. It's enacted. I'm constantly, my cognition is, in, is a form of sensory motor interaction between me and the world where the brain isn't the place of cognition, it's one pole that's shaping the relationship between me and the world. The other pole, of course, is the world, and the cognition is between me and the world. That means I'm embedded. My cognition is inherently embedded, and it's extended. My cognition is not just in me, but also through the world, especially through other people. Most of our cognition is not done like individual computers. It's done more like the internet. We link to way before our culture, sorry, way before the internet networked computers together to release the power of distributed computation. Culture networked people together to release the power of distributed cognition. And so what we're trying to do in this new approach is to see the way in which the brain is helping to constantly evolve on many levels of analysis, this ability to get an optimal grip on the world, fit itself to the world in an ongoing dynamic manner, which is a very dy dynamic manner, which is a very different way from the old computational model. And so we, in, in this 40 cognitive science, we don't just pay attention to what people believe. We pay attention to their skills. And, and those aren't the same. Beliefs and skills aren't the same. Skills are ways in which you're shaping your sensory motor interaction. They're that's a different way of knowing the world. We pay attention to your situational awareness, right? Your, your states of mind and how they're making things salient and relevant to you on an ongoing basis. And, and we pay attention to the ways in which biology and culture and your online cognition are constantly shaping you and the world to fit each other. You're doing it right now. And why that's really important um, for me and for a lot of people 
in this 4E third generation cognitive science is we happen to think that most of what makes human life meaningful to people is in these non-propositional aspects of our cognition, the level of our skills, of our situational awareness, of the way in which we're dynamically coupled to the world. And that our culture has been too focused on beliefs and propositions. And that has um, really cut us off in an important way from the machinery of meaning making. So I tried to gather a lot um, and I hope that wasn't um, too cursory, but maybe it at least gives us some potential threads for discussion. I, I think it's a great starting point, John. And um, no, I haven't discussed 4E cognition with these guys. We've been really um, in, engrossed in practice, questions of mm. practice. Um, and so I think this is, um, and I'm really excited about this conversation because this is the first time I get to publicly talk about these things, even though um, they're a big part of my sort of behind the scenes work. So um, yeah, I'm really excited. I wanted to call out something specific that you said, that cognition is a form of sensory motor interaction with the world. Mm. So I'm gonna repeat that. And I, I actually would encourage you all to write this down. Um, Gabriel, maybe you can even put it in the chat box that cognition, what cognition is, cognition is a form of sensory motor interaction with the world. Mm -hmm. And there are a number of things that are important about that and that are relevant to what we've been doing together around this surfacing the invisibles practice, right? So our way of knowing, our way of perceiving, our way of taking action in the world is sensory motor, you know, as John pointed out, like you're already in motion as soon as you're trying to perceive and make sense of something. Right? So it's sensory motor and, uh, and it's interactive, right? We're, we're, it's not just me, it's me and the pen, right? And so um, when we're what we've been talking about in terms of practice, like the surfacing the invisibles practice, what we've been trying to do is make that invisible process visible. Mm. That experience, mm. the experience of... Um, uh, you know, having some embodied reaction to something and, and, and in concert with that embodied reaction, taking action in the world, that's, that's kind of what we're looking at. And John, I know you, you really care a lot about meaning making and mm -hmm. how we make uh, sense of our lives, how we make sense of the world and that we're in this meaning crisis. Mm -hmm. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit and then maybe I can share my perspective too on, so how is it that this um, embedded, inactive, embodied, extended way of um, knowing about and perceiving and being in the world, how does that actually serve our sense of meaning or our understanding of ourselves? Wow, that's great. Um, well, you guys are lucky that Amanda is doing this for you. I mean, this is, I think this is kind of one of the central things that needs to be done right now, this, this kind of um, I, I mean, this is a compliment. It's not a dismissive term. This translation into practice, um, I think it's central. I think that makes sense given what I've just said anyways. Um, so, yeah, so let's do a, a I just want to use a quick example of the, 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 the shaping. And I, uh, right, and I, I want to try and get you uh, people aware of, um, uh, of, uh, of in practice how it works. So I did the this. But let, let's, let's zero in on attention. So it's sort of basically 
the core of cognition uh, given this new model um, rather than calculation. So notice what's happening right now with your attention, all of you, me included, even though I'm speaking. Notice there's two pulls on your attention. One of yours is this thing, I can think about something else. Or I'm going to think about that. Or when's he going to be done talking? And I want to hear more of Joel. Or, uh, you know, maybe I shouldn't have got. And so there's distraction, pulling your attention away in various direction. And what's that doing? It's opening up opportunity and it's introducing variation. But notice there's another part of you that's going, no, 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 pay attention, right? And, and we think of this as concentration. Think of the metaphor. And what it's doing out of those options is it's, it's keeping one of them alive. It's keeping one of those options alive, and then that's what you pay attention to. But that doesn't mean you just stay always on this thing, because, you know, Amanda will start talking, and you will shift your attention. So notice what you're doing. There's variation of options, and then there's selection down. And there's variation of options, and there's selection down. And you don't want to stop anywhere, because if you just do this, you're distracted and useless. And if you just do this, you get rigid, and you can't learn a damn thing. So what is cognition doing? It's constantly flowing between them. You see this dynamical self-organization. Now, what's that very much like? That's very much like the biological process of evolution. What does evolution do? What it does is it introduces variations in the members of a population, and that puts selection on it, kills most of them off. Some small subpopulation survives. It goes on. It opens up with variation, selection. You see the same process. The same process is going on and your attention is in a way embodying something that's very similar. It's a sped up online version of how evolution works. Now, what does evolution do? It constantly adapts the organism to the environment and also gets the organism to shape the environment to fit it. It's called niche construction and culture speeds that up and then cognition speeds that up online. You're doing something very much like not biological evolution, but cognitive evolution of how you are cognitively adaptively fitted to the environment. So that sense of being well fitted to the environment, that's a deep sense of connection. Now, when we do look, when we do research, and I do research on this, on what people think make, what people report and what is predictive of them reporting, because you got to do both of those, by the way, makes their life more meaningful. Now, I'm not talking about the meaning in life because I'm very agnostic about whether or not there's any cosmic destiny for people or anything like that. I have suspicions that there isn't a teleology in things. So I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about what are the factors that make people say, my life is worth living, it's meaningful to me. And contrary to what many people think, it's not so much a lot of pleasure. I mean, if you're in constant pain, that's not good. Um, it's not just about being sort of content. There seem to be four main factors. Now, let me give them to you and then let me tie them back to what I just said. So one of the factors is one that people think is the only factor and they, they try to make it a synonym in our culture, purpose, right? An overarching goal that organizes all your other goals. What we know is that purpose does matter to meaning in life. If you have a purpose, you'll rate your life as more meaningful, okay? But it's only one of four factors. And here's the most important thing I wanna to say to you right now at this point, it's not the most important factor. Contrary to what our culture teaches us, it's not the most important factor, okay? And so we have to remember that if we want, for example, our coaching 
and we're telling people to act on purpose and to work towards goals, we have to remember two things at the same time. It's, it's important, but it's not the most important factor. So what are the other important factors? The second is coherence. Things have to fit. They have to make sense. They have to intelligibly fit together for people. Another way of saying this is people don't want their experience to feel absurd to them. It has to make sense to them. They have to be able to make sense, understand, get insight into this situation. That's important. The next is significance. People need to feel that their experiences are deep or real. Not every experience, but that they regularly and reliably have some deep experiences, significant experiences. Fourth, and this is, this is the really big one, actually. It's called mattering. Um, and Su Susan Wolf wrote a great book on it called Meaning in Life and Why It Matters, right? Um, what, what is this? And this is the metaphor that people use. They need to feel that they're connected to something bigger than themselves. Now, that's a that, it's a metaphor. You know it's a metaphor because if you just change somebody to a mountain, you go, now you're connected to something bigger than yourself. They won't go, oh, wow, great. Hmm. So what's, a what's it a metaphor for? And this is where you have to do quite a bit of psychology and it's still unfolding. But what the picture that it's emerging is people need to feel not how things are relevant to them, but how they're relevant to something that has a value and reality independent of their own egocentric desires. Now, why, what are those four all really talking about? They're talking about what I was talking about a few minutes ago. They're talking about this, how you adaptively, right, make sense of the world. You get that connectedness, that fittedness, that adaptive fittedness, and it's alive and dynamic for you. That's your connection to yourself, the connection to other people, and the connection to the world. And that's what you're talking about when you're talking about all these things, all of these four factors, and that becomes really clear in the mattering factor, but even in the coherence factor, are ways in which you are realizing, in both senses of the word, making real and becoming aware, you're realizing a connectedness to yourself, to other people, and the world. And why does that matter? Notice the pun here. Why does that matter so much to you? Because that goes to the very core of being a living thing. Living things are, are, are they're, not, they're not lumps, right? They're, they're self-making things. You, right, think, think, even, think even of like a, a microbe, like a bacteria. It's not like a tornado. It just, it's not just self-organizing. It's self-organizing, so it seeks out, it adaptively seeks out the things that will literally matter to it. It looks for chemicals that it makes sense of as food, when it has that right adaptive fit connectedness, things literally matter to it. Or li li listen to the next word. They're literally import, import, important to it. Things matter to you and they're important to you if you have this fundamental sense, this fundamental realization of connectedness. And so the degree to which 4E cognitive science puts us into an awareness, a theoretical scientific awareness, of the way in which we're constantly, moment by moment, at many levels, right, evolving 
this adapted fittedness, it actually points us to all this machinery below the level of our sort of computational thought where the meaning making, the connection, the fittedness, the world and us belonging together occurs. And so the degree to which we get people to take that scientific awareness and make it existential so they can take that theory and put it into practice to actually enhancing all of that is the degree to which we're going to make people's lives more meaningful. And meaning in life is one of the most powerful motivators we have. And we, you shouldn't confuse it with just pleasure and you shouldn't confuse it just with subjective well-being, how sort of good you feel about yourself, right? Because it is independently of those other two powerfully predictive of why people do the kinds of things they do. And if you want an example of this kind of sensory motor loop really getting enhanced, it's the flow state. The, the state studied by Csikszentmihalyi, and I've published on it. This is the state where athletes and dancers and jazz musicians and rock climbers and video gamers get into, they're in the zone and they feel completely at one and they have this ongoing sense of discovery and that nattering propositional nanny in their head falls silent because they're so engaged and absorbed with the task. And this is an optimal experience. They rate it as one of the best experiences of their life and they're at their best. And the more of these they have, the more they think their life is worth living. That's the kind of connection I'm talking about. Thank you. There's a, like 17 different directions I want to go. With oh, I'm that. Sorry. And I also want to know, it's so, I mean, it's so good, it's so rich. And I'm going to want to bring Joel in with some questions here soon too, but let me, I want to touch on at, at least two different things you've said. So um, uh, one is around connection to self, others, and world, right? right? And, and the way that that happens and that, and that sort of um, adaptive seeking of fittedness between yes. me and yeah. my situation, me and another person. One of the things that my research is showing, this hasn't been published yet, um, but it's on its way is um, among many other things like resilience and uh, flourishing and conflict management and empathy, we see that when you increase your embodied self-awareness, in other words, mm. your ability to mm. sense yourself interoceptively, proprioceptively and, and make meaning of that, of those sensations, when you increase that, you increase your sense of connectedness. Mm. And we studied it. We studied this in, in um, on a number of different uh, levels. I think the question asked about connection to self, connection to coaching clients, connection to friends and family, and connection to nature. And uh, and people sort of, you know, there's like a Venn diagram. Some of you may have participated in this research. Thank you if you are remembering this. Um, you know, sort of a Venn diagram of like not very connected all the way to you know really yeah. overlapping. And, um, and what we found is that people who have developed their embodied self-awareness more significantly do have uh, a higher sense of connectedness, increased sense of connectedness, as well as increased sense of, um, uh, not sense of, but actually behavioral skills of mm. resilience, conflict management, uh, empathy, and so on. And so I think that, that um, what that points to, to me, is that the development of embodied self-awareness is part of what we have available to us, right? It's part of our cognitive capacity 
that we can use to, to play this game of uh, adaptive seeking to the right mm. fit, right? Mm. And so when you're working with your clients, they are always adaptively seeking some right fit next move for them. It might be a career move. It might be that they're trying to make improvements in their health. It might be that they're, you know, trying to change something about their close intimate relationships, but whatever it is that you're working with them on, maybe that they're trying to increase their leadership capacity or get a promotion or whatever, right? Whatever it is that you're working with them on, what you're fundamentally trying to help them do is that adaptive seeking process. Like how do I navigate right. my environment to hopefully, if you're oriented this way in your coaching or if your client is oriented it this way in their lives, hopefully um, move towards greater meaning in life. Right. So if we're doing that kind of adaptive seeking and we're doing it in a more embodied rather than just a conceptual propositional knowing sort of way, then we we're just using more of our cognitive capacity mm, to, yep. to do that task. Right. Um, so that was one thing I wanted to say. There's a second thing that I want to respond to, but you, you look like you have some things to say about that. And I'm curious to hear them. I, I, I want to see your research when it comes out. Uh, this sounds mm -hmm. great. It's convergent with some of the uh, other stuff I've seen about, um, you know, how the insula, um, which is activated in introception, uh, is also activated when we're trying to mind sight other people, when we're trying to pick up on other people's mental states. It looks like yep. a form of, of exaptation. And so what you're saying, it sounds very convergent with that. So, and, you know, Convergence in science raises the plausibility of the theory tremendously. So uh, I'm very excited about that. That's very cool. That's all I wanted to say. I was just I just wanted to express my enthusiasm for your research because it really cool. resonates, <laughs> resonates with other stuff I've seen. Good, good. I'm I'm glad to hear that. And um, you know, the feeling's mutual. I'm so glad that we get to be in this conversation. So thank you again, Joel, for putting us together. Um, the second thing that I wanted to point to is your point that uh, um, about attentional choice, right? right? That we can that that always we are um, focusing in on something. We're choosing something that our attention goes to, and some other things that get filtered out. And I have an exercise around this that I want to offer to to all of you that that I think illustrates this point really beautifully. So, if if um if you all just like look around you in whatever room you are in and count the number of um, shades of green that you see. So I'm, it doesn't matter where you land, but just kind of quickly count. So I've got roughly 10. What do you see, John? I've got about 12 because I have a lot of books on a bookshelf and many of them have different shades of green covering. So that's really awesome. <laughs> Great. Okay. So now without looking around, John, how many shades of red? And this is a question for all of y'all. How many shades of red do you, do you, are, are you surrounded by right now? You don't know. You don't know because you're filtering in grain, you're, you're focusing in your attention and you're filtering out red. Right. And so always we're, we are never not doing that. Mm -hmm. We are never not doing that. There is always more to perceive than we are actually perceiving. And so we act as these sort of like, I don't know if the best, um, if the best analogy is like an antenna or a filter, both of those work or a spotlight. I sometimes use that, that analogy, right? But like, there's a certain signal that we're receiving, or there's a certain something that we're spotlighting, or there's a bunch of stuff that we're filtering in and filtering out. And we do that 
in service of pursuit. I mean, this, and this happens sometimes intentionally, but mostly automatically. We do that in service of this process of adaptive seeking, yeah. of yeah. fittedness, yeah? So, um, so bringing it back to practice, right? What we pay attention to matters. If we have more cognitive capacity than we usually use, because we're usually just sort of mostly up here in language, if we start to pay attention to more of our cognitive capacity, we, we start to um, perceive more and, and be able to take different kinds of actions. <laughs> this, I, <laughs> wow. So that, what you just did and what we're talking about, this is actually the core of my scientific work. Um, with, with, cool. So, and I want to just talk about it briefly for a second because it'll allow me to give a little bit more flesh to my claim that we're not primarily computational in nature, uh, even though we think we are um, for various cultural, historical, economic reasons. Um, so that ability, um, that's an ability I call relevance realization. And what Amanda just showed you, not only with the colors and the shades, the number of shapes, the number of objects, like the, the amount of information that's actually available to you is overwhelmingly vast. It's right. And the number of connections you can make. Um, the number, right. And when we talk about information, I'm talking about all the potential patterns you could make, all the potential differences, all the potential grouping. It's astronomically vast. I mean, like you, like bigger than the size of the universe when you try and do it mathematically. It's called combinatorial explosive. You can't possibly search that whole space. The amount of uh, information you have in long-term memory is also really huge. Have you ever met anybody that said, nope, I'm full, that's it, can't take any more in, okay? And not only is there the amount of information in there vast, the ways in which you can connect all those pieces of information as well. Maybe there's a connection between aardvarks and Albanian tin mining. Maybe there is, I don't know, right? All the possible connections are huge. That's also combinatorial explosive. All the things you can do to try and mediate between the inner and outer world by acting. Think about all the potential sequences of actions you can create. I can move this finger, I can move this finger, I can move these fingers, I can move this finger, then this finger, right? That's also combinatorially explosive. Out of so this is what you don't do. This is what your brain can't do. It can't search all that information. It can't search all the information out there. It can't search all the information in here. It can't search out all the potential patterns of interaction you can do. What you do, and you're doing it right now, and it absolutely fascinates me, and I've dedicated 21 years of my career to it, is you zero in on the relevant information. You do it. You're doing it right now. And this is not what you did. You didn't check all the information and say, no, that's irrelevant. That's irrelevant. That's irrelevant. And this is going to sound like a paradox, like a Zen Cohen. You intelligently ignore the most, 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 most of the information. Yep. So, and, 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 and this ability that I'm putting my finger on, this is the ability we have not figured out how to give to computers. In fact, that's why most people reject the computational model as being the model that will explain our cognition. Right, right, because you can't get a robot to, to, to move around and pick things up computationally. What, what, the, what the robot will do is it will create propositional representations and then try to trace out all the inferential in, right, relations and then it very quickly gets overwhelmed. Um, yeah. And that's why we pass from computers to neural networks and then we pass from neural networks um, to 
dynamical systems, this, what, this model we're talking about now, just in a similar way that evolution finds adaptive fit without creating all, checking all possible organisms, your brain is doing that right now. It's moment by moment evolving. But here's, here's the key thing I wanna to say to you, right? Notice that you have moments when you realize that that framing has actually misled you. When you have an aha moment, when you go, oh, right, I've been thinking about this in the wrong way. I thought that was important and it's not, right? That's a, right. So, you know, there's a man, he lives in the United States. He marries hundreds of women every year. None of them die. He doesn't divorce any of them and he doesn't break any laws. How does he do it? He's a priest. He's a priest. He marries women to other men. Aha, right, you all knew that Mary had those two meanings. You all know that Mary can mean to become a spouse, but also to make somebody in a So you originally, like, it's like putting on glasses. You really, oh, John said Mary, that means to become a spouse. But it turns out, oh no, that's the wrong frame. I gotta pay attention to other information, the other meaning of Mary. That's an aha, an insight. And see, this is, this is the thing, right? The very processes that make you adaptively fit can also lock you in and make you radically malfunction. The very processes that make you intelligently adaptive make you prey to self-deception, to fixation, to self-sabotaging, to self-deceptive, self-destructive behavior. And so you need to cultivate, this is exactly Amanda's point, you need to cultivate a greater flexibility of attention and awareness and even identity. How much of your being are you identifying with? You've got to increase that range if you want to increase your chances of breaking out when you are inappropriately locked into the wrong framing. And if you don't do, and you can't think your way through that, you can't like sort of reason your way through it. It doesn't work that way. That's not how insight works. So there's deep connections between you know, these practices and the ability to overcome the ways in which we perennially are susceptible to self-deception. The thing about self-deception is it undermines that those connections. When you're malfunctioning in that way, your connectedness to yourself, to each other in the world goes down and you ultimately lead meaning in life. Why do people go into therapy? Do you think they not have the propositional knowledge? Of course they have the propositional knowledge. My relationships keep screwing up. I keep doing this stupid thing, but why do I keep doing it? They have to get out of that and they have to get an insight that comes from these other kinds of knowing. And they have to come up with a new way of identifying with these other kinds of knowing. They have to know how to be different. They have to know what it's like to be different. They have to know, they have to be able to become that different person. And then they restore the missing meaning in life. Anyways, I could, this is the problem with me. I just keep talking and talking. I gotta stop. It's good. I, well, um, I, I want to bring Joel back in. Yeah. It looks like you're, yes, well, steer us, my friend. Um, I think the, the question I have for both of you, and I'll, I'll, I'll fire it to John first, is because you just talked about that range, you know, how do we increase that range? And perhaps you could say something about these different types of knowing. Yeah. Um, and we've been talking about them already, but we've mentioned um, propositional knowing, but I think there's other types that you're referring to. And I think Amanda has already alluded to in, in the, the power of increasing our embodiment and how, yeah. how that connects to also the meaning crisis and um, you know, the, the explosion of interest in, in bringing things like mindfulness and embodiment into coaching. Um, so that's probably a lot, but, and then, you know, I want to bring Amanda in and see where she takes that too. 
Let okay. me before okay. we go there. Sure. Can I can I just please, um please. Uh, share a share a request I saw in the chat box to take a little bit of a deep breath and this is feeling like at least for one practitioner a lot from a practitioner standpoint where and I we recognize I just want to say um, we recognize that we're getting into the philosophical and and at some level scientific weeds here and that's part of the purpose of this conversation right Joel I don't know if you want to say anything about that but but like um, I think the idea here was to really expand our thinking in directions that we maybe haven't gone before. Um, and so um, we'll keep bringing it back to practice. And that's not our main objective here. I wanna, I wanna say that. So now you've probably totally lost track of Joel's question. I'm sorry, John, but no, I wanted no, no. to kind of give that frame. No, no, Amanda, I appreciate you saying that. Um, um, I, I hope everybody takes it. My intent is not to, uh, to wander into the weeds. I, I just am very enthusiastic about this because likewise, I think this has the real potential to, well, I know it does because I see it in practice, has the real potential to really uh, improve people's lives in a significant and long lasting way. And so uh, at a time in which a lot of people are increasingly, there was a, uh, a survey in the UK recently, I think in 2017, 89% of the people surveyed thought that their lives were meaningless. 89. It's just, it's just, it just, like I, oh, just kills me, right? So that's part of what I mean by the meaning crisis. Um, yeah. yeah, so let, let's, uh, and I'll try and slow down. <laughs> uh, um, so I'll try and talk about these four kinds of knowing. Um, and let's try and go through it uh, step by step. Let's start with what we're most familiar, propositional knowing. This is knowing that something is the case and the content of your knowledge is a proposition. For example, I know that cats are mammals. Cats are mammals is a proposition, and I, I know that that fact is what? True. So what, what, how, how, do I, how do I cognitively grasp that? I, I have beliefs that gives, I believe that uh, cats are mammals, and then I get good evidence, and then that evidence gives me a sense that the, the proposition is true. And that's how it connects to reality. There's a connection. But in order to do that, notice that I actually have to have a lot of skills. I have to, I have to know how to propose. I have to know how to talk. And, so, and this belongs to a whole family of things. I have to know how to ride a bike. I have to know how to catch ball. I, know how, I have to know how to walk. This is knowing how to do something. And the content of that isn't a belief. It isn't a proposition. It's a skill that shapes your sensory motor interaction. And what's the sense of realness in a skill? Well, it's not truth. It's a sense of power, that you're fitted to the way in the world that gives you expertise, that gives you power over the world, that you can intervene and change the world. But notice in order to exercise any skill, I have to know, I have to know a bunch. I have to know, I have to know about my situation. So in the literature, this is called situational awareness. So which skills are relevant right now? Should I, should I start uh, doing Tai Chi? That might be relevant because I talk, uh, but perhaps not. Maybe it's, oh, John's just doing weird motions. Swimming doesn't seem to be appropriate at all, right? Talking is, but what kind of talking? Do you see which skills I apply and which skills I acquire depend on my situational awareness? What is your situational awareness? Well, if you look into the situational awareness, 
it's basically how how your state of mind, your consciousness is creating a perspective for you. What's a perspective? Some things are focal, foregrounded. Other things are backgrounded. Some things are standing out. Some things are not standing out for you. And this is constantly weaving as your attention is doing that, e e that constant evolving evolution that we talked about. So I have this sort of dynamic salience landscape that's constantly shifting. And sometimes it radically shifts when I have an aha moment. So I know what it's like to be me here now in this state of mind. That's my situational awareness. Now, that's not quite a skill because it's a state of mind. And it's not a theory or a belief. So what is it? Well, like I said, it's this generating of a perspective. And we can know what the sense of realness is in there because when we study situational awareness, we can study it in a new domain that allows us to do a lot of experimental work. It's called virtual reality. You're using it right now, by the way, right? So what is it that people seek? What's the good? What makes a virtual environment more real to them? It's called a sense of presence. A sense of presence, right? So what gives people a sense of presence? A lot of people think, oh, more, how realistic the environment is in the virtual world. That's called verisimilitude. Actually, that doesn't matter very much because you can have very realistic virtual worlds and people say, no, I don't feel like I'm in the game. Sorry. And you can get it in games like Tetris that are not like the world at all. People will feel like they're in Tetris. They will even start dreaming in Tetris, which is really interesting. So what is it that gives people that sense of presence? Well, you probably already know what I'm going to say. It's the sense of optimal grip, that sense of being appropriately fitted to the world. That's a sense of presence. So that's what gives you your situational awareness. That's your perspectival knowing. This is knowing not that or not how. It's knowing what it's like to be me here now in this state of mind and body in this situation. But then that gets us to the deepest level of knowing, which is, well, what is a situation? There's, there's, no, there's no such thing as a situation in physics or chemistry or biology. Like, oh, there's five grams of situatedness here. What's a situation? What do, we use this term all the time, but stop. What do we mean by it? What is it? So a situation is how things are situated, how they are appropriately related together. So this is the kind of knowing that comes from you and the world. And we've been talking about this all the way through being appropriately fitted together. This is you and you're doing it right now. You're constantly assuming a particular identity. Maybe you're a student. Maybe you're assuming your identity as a coach. Maybe you're assuming your identity as a practitioner. You're constantly assuming identities and assigning identities to things. There's the screen. That's a person. He's a scientist. There's the moderator. Is that all I am? Is that all Joel is? Is that all Amanda is? Of course not. So you're selecting some, uh, and are you just a practitioner? I hope not. That's a horrible hell if you're trapped there, right? I'm also a father. I'm also a lover. I'm also a friend. So I'm constantly doing this. I'm constantly shaping myself by assuming particular identities. 
and I'm constantly shaping the world by assigning particular identities to it. So this is a glass, and I'm a drinker. I can drink from it. We're mutually shaped to fit each other. So this is a meaningful thing to me. I, I, I assume a particular identity. I assign a particular identity. And people can get really messed up at that level of knowing. Mark Lewis, friend and colleague of mine, has proposed what I think is the best account of addiction in this manner. So let's let's. So the standard model is addiction is like a disease. I take my alcohol and I'm like a disease, and I'm compelled to do it. This model does not track the empirical evidence well at all. We like to think it's true, and governments want it to be true because then they can hopefully solve this easy problem. But it doesn't account for the data. It doesn't account for the fact you have all kinds of soldiers in Vietnam using opiates, remember the opioid crisis, then returning to the United States and without any therapy, spontaneously giving up using the opioids. A small minority become addicted. Most of them don't. Why not? What happened? When they were in Nam, they had a particular identity and they were in a particular arena of action. But when they went to the United States, they assume a different identity and they're assigning different identities to the world around them, a different arena. Addiction goes like this. The world, I'm finding, I'm situated, the world is just stressful to me. So I take some alcohol to remove the stress, to make things, to alter my salience landscape. But what that does is it actually reduces my cognitive flexibility. So my, my ability to see options and alternatives in the world goes down. So the world narrows. And now the world is becoming more difficult for me because the options are running out. So I take more of the alcohol and that limits my cognitive flexibility. And so I narrow. My identity narrows and then the world's identity narrows. And then my identity narrows and, and the reciprocal narrowing until I can't be any other than I am. I have one identity and the world is reduced to, to one thing that's salient to me, the drug. Participatory knowing can, is the level at which we can fall into addiction. But here's the thing you need to know, and then I'll shut up. You can go the other way. You can open up your cognitive flexibility so that you open up the world, which opens up your cognitive flexibility which opens up the world. And that's what you're doing in the flow state. That's reciprocal opening. And that goes from the identities you're at to your situational awareness, to the skills you're applying, to the beliefs you're informing. And if your culture tells you to only be here, only identify here, only believe that this is the only way in which you get access to the world, all of this other machinery and also all the ways it can go wrong are cut off from you. And that's part of what is happening in the meaning crisis is why we have opioid crisis, why we have loneliness, why mental health disorders are going up, why, why, why people are, why suicide is going up in, in, especially in areas of high affluence. Okay, I hope that was enough, Joel. That was great. And Amanda, just before you dive in, maybe you could um, tie this to, because I can hear it, but how we tie this to coach, the work we do as coaches and expanding that, um, you know, you talked about addiction is narrowing. How do we expand and how do we create insight and, and invite insight into our lives? You know, That's actually, Joel, that's exactly where I was going, was this reciprocal narrowing, reciprocal opening. So, so when we have clients that come to us, Right. Um, here, John is 
giving an example of how this functions in addiction, right? But we also talk a lot about coaching in about um, habits and behavior and changing habits and behavior, right? And so when 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 you have a client that comes to you, for example, who um, uh, let's say you're working with them on standing up to their boss, right? And having a sort of a more powerful voice at work. And they say to you, I, I, I can't say no to my boss. I mean, I can't, like that would be out of the question, right? And you might um, inquire into their embodied experience when they think about saying no to their boss, their heart starts to beat really fast or they hold their breath or they get flushed or they start, you know, maybe they're, they get really jittery or their hands get into fists or whatever. Right. So that's part of the participatory knowing of like, ah, no way can I possibly, you know, uh, turn down my boss about anything. Right. And then what our job is to do, whether the challenge is I can't say no to my boss or I can't say no in general or uh, I'm trying to improve my health or whatever, whatever it is. Right. Uh, Our job is to help that reciprocal. opening between agent and arena, between self and world. We're trying to um, generate reciprocal opening. And one of the ways that we have that we can do that is to help people get uh, more deeply, intimately familiar with their participatory knowing. In other words, their embodied ways of being, right? Like, how does it feel to be in the situation where you're contracted or heart beating fast or breathless about the prospect of saying no to your boss. Okay. And how does it feel when you feel fine about saying no? Oh, look at that. Your shoulders are dropped. You breathe differently. Your, your eyebrows are actually more relaxed. Huh? So, so what if next time you go in to talk to your boss about how they're putting too much on your plate, you try relaxing your eyebrows and dropping your shoulders, right? What might that do what might that reveal to you about the way you're kind of coupled with your world, right? And start to open up new patterns of behavior, start to bust old habits, right? So um, that's, Joel, exactly where I wanted to go because I think this reciprocal opening, it's, it's a lot of what we do as coaches, even though we don't necessarily use that language. A lot of what we're doing is helping people kind of dig into what their beliefs and stories are about what they can and can't do or what is and isn't possible for them. And when we're operating at the level of beliefs and stories, we're at that level of propositional knowing or facts or information, right? Knowledge about, this is about this story about my situation. And as you know, it can be incredibly powerful to help someone change their perspective, their point of view, to help them see in a new way. But part of what we've been doing this in this surfacing the invisibles uh, set of sessions is we've been help we've been learning how to help ourselves and our clients sense in a new way. Mm. And when we sense in a new way, then we start to get more into the procedural ways of knowing, the perspectival and the participatory ways of knowing. And I kind of put a summary of those in the chat box for you all. I don't know if you saw, so if you've missed that, you can kind of check that out. Um, but what we're doing when we get, um, when we pay more attention to our embodied cognition is we're dropping into those deeper layers of our, uh, cognitive capacity and bringing those to play in service of this reciprocal opening. 
That was beautiful, Amanda. I'm really glad we're here together. <laughs> <laughs> As am I. This is just a just such a rich conversation. Thank you, John. Yeah. Well, um, me too. I'm also I'm thrilled to be uh, listening to this conversation and. Um, Perhaps we could bring in some questions now. And um, by the way, I just thought, you know, when you were talking about the flow state, coaching is an amazing place for me to drop into flow state. You know, it, it's, uh, yeah. it's an amazing um, doorway into that flow state. So let's bring in some questions. Yeah, there was uh, an interesting question that uh, came up earlier. And Catherine, Catherine Casey, I'm going to bring you live because you have said that you work with children and youth mental health and you had a question around that, so. Okay, so in child and youth mental health, what I'm experiencing is that I find more and more that I'm inhabiting a world that is different from the world of the youth I work with. And I find a lot of the time, you know, um, they're looking for meaning in, their, in the online culture, which mm. a lot of it seems artificial to me. Um, and I was just looking, for some input on that. And I guess the reference to the crisis and meaning is part of it. I mean, they're finding meaning in a much different place mm -hmm. than I am. But I mean, at the same time, they're, they're sitting in front of me unhappy. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just that, uh, you know, um, finding significance on, um, you know, all the platforms that they go to isn't working for them in some ways and, you know, so just, I'm looking for comments on that. Well, uh, I, I have a lot to say about that actually. Uh, so it's a really good question. One of the symptoms of the meaning crisis is what's been called the virtual exodus, uh, that people are spending more and more time in the virtual world rather than the real world. And of course, COVID has accelerated that. Um, and, and, and not only that, uh, one of the books on this is entitled Reality is Broken, people preferring the virtual world um, to the real world. And, and we also have increasing evidence that this is deleterious to your health. If you wanna really improve your mental health, uh, get off Facebook, get off Instagram, get off TikTok. Reliably, these things are negative overall uh, on your mental health, reliably, okay? Um, now, now we, 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 but we'll all say, but why can't, right? So that's of course the tension that it, people have to work out in their individual lives. So I think, uh, you're definitely putting your finger on a real issue. And one of the things I would get that might help bridge back, um, the WHO is actually now officially recognized video game addiction as a real thing. Um, because what's going on, like see, addictions are all built off of this adaptive machinery. And so people are get video games are one of the best machines we've ever created for getting people into the flow state. So within the, within the virtual world, they're getting into the flow state. So within the, if you'll allow me, and this is not a contradiction, within the virtual world, they're doing reciprocal opening, but in the real world, they're engaged in reciprocal narrowing. And, and so that's a very difficult thing to break people out of because they're getting immediate flow reward, but they're not, right? But they're not being able to transfer that out to the world at large. And, and, and then there you have to ask yourself, well, why not? And one way, to, one way my research is looking at that, work I've done with Christopher Master Pietro, is to look at what's in a video game, for example, that people feel is not in the real world. Well, what's there? 
What's there is a world that has coherence, that makes intelligible sense. They know what the rules are. They know what the rules are. There's a narrative. So there's, there's a, what's called a nomological order. There are rules right, that make sense of that world. They know what to do in that world and they play an important role. There's a narrative. And then they know how to level up. That's normative. They know how to self-transcend. And what they're telling us if you'll allow me, by their addiction is, I don't know how to self-transcend in the real world. Nobody's helping me on that. I don't feel like my agency fits in or makes a difference, matters to anybody. And this doesn't make any sense to me. This is absurd, the so-called real world. And if you don't think that the upcoming generations think the world is absurd, look at their popular entertainment. You'll see it. So what we have to ask ourselves is why are they starving for these things? And here's, here, here's a way of thinking about it. Cultures have figured out across time and across environmental context that the very processes, what we've been talking about today, the very processes that make us adaptive, make us perennially susceptible, so self-deceptive, self-destructive behavior like the people in the virtual exodus. So what have they done? They've created ecologies of practices for ameliorating that self-deception and for enhancing the sense of connectedness to themselves, to each other in the world. And we have a name for that in something I study, it's wisdom. Now wisdom isn't some highfalutin religious thing. We just published last year a consensus paper in a high impact journal on the science of wisdom. So if I ask, if I ask the millennials, right, where do you go for information? The internet, where do you go for knowledge? They'll give me, well, science, but I have my questions. And then I'll ask them, I do this in my classroom. Where do you go for wisdom? Where do you go for enhancing your agency, making sense of things and self-transcending in a way that reliably reduces your self-deception and increases your connections? And what I like get from them is a deafening silence. They don't know where to go. We don't offer them anything. And so they go to the virtual world because that's the best surrogate they have for the cultivation of wisdom. And I'm going to say something that's very bold, perhaps hubristic, but until our culture comes up with reliable ways of giving people communities and practices by which they can cultivate wisdom, we are not going to be able to compete with the intoxication of the virtual world. I hope you found that helpful. Awesome. Nilu, you have a question. Yes. Hi. Hi. I, this question is for Amanda, actually. So, you know, I, I think that I have been, um, I'm all over the place. I think I'm mirroring John, but I, I, I try to write my questions down. So, so my question is when we think of a way to reciprocally open, if there's narrowing going on, one of the ways that I have done that from a linguistics perspective is use the concept of synesthesia, which is when you, when you, for example, might use one sense to confuse the person so that they break that state of narrowing. So how, so a synesthesia example might be, you know, how does this inner dialogue taste or how does this critical inner dialogue smell? So in that moment, you get confused, you come out of that narrowing, you come into um, more of an opening. So I wonder, Amanda, can you provide an example of a synesthesia type of 
scenario for a somatic embodied experience? How might you begin to open versus narrow when it comes to an embodied approach? I don't know if that makes sense. Uh, it does. It does make sense. And actually, um, Neela, I think that's a, a, that's brilliant. I haven't heard that before. I'm going to adopt it myself. Um, I think that kind of synesthesia approach um, can interrupt a um, kind of a habitual uh, way of being and, and get someone out of their ruts. And the way that I would think about applying that to interoception and proprioception and just take on board, like, this is the first time I'm thinking about it this way. But one of the things that I'll commonly do is, is I'll ask someone in an, like, about their interoceptive sense. So say they say that they're, they're feeling tightness in their chest. I might ask them what color it is. Or I might ask them if it has a, a certain, um, I, I might ask them something like, is it more rough or smooth, right? And, you know, if we think about it in a very literal sense, the organ of the heart is probably the same amount rough or smooth as it was a minute ago as it is now, right? Like th that's probably in a biological sense, not changing very much, but in our felt sense, when we can um, come into kind of metaphorical relationship with our felt sense, that can be very, very powerful. And there's some research out there, coaching related research. Um, my colleague, Ann Betts is really all over this on the role of metaphor in um, flipping us out of our uh, kind of habitual perspectives or habitual ways of seeing and being with certain, certain kinds of things. So that's my first stab at it. I think it's a really interesting question, something that you've prompted me to just go and learn more about and explore more. So shoot me an email if you want to stay in conversation about it. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so there, there was a quick question that came through from uh, Mary Carroll, and she was wondering, uh, John, if you had the name of a person or anyone who has done research or any work on different ways of looking at addiction other than the disease model. You're muted. I'll yep. piggyback on that while you're unmuted. Um, I'm actually curious, John, if you are familiar with um, Gabor Mate's research around connectedness and, yep. and uh, addiction. I'd love to hear you talk about that. I'm not that familiar with it. I I I've got I, I know a bit about it. Um, I I guess I mean there's lots of videos by uh, by him, and so there there's that's a good name and that's a, a, a good access. Uh, the the notion of reciprocal narrowing uh, addiction. I mentioned the 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 uh, the author Mark Lewis. Um, so and you can and the thing about Mark, uh, I mean he's a friend and colleague of mine. So all of this is public, so I'm not breaking any confidentiality. He was himself. A long-term addict and then he got out of his addiction and became a neuroscientist and has created probably one of the best theories of neuroscience you can read his book called memoirs of an addicted brain and then you can take a look at some of his uh you know published scientific work on it um th those are two good places to start i don't want to overload people with a lot of names but those i, I, I and uh <laughs> The notion of reciprocal opening and reciprocal narrowing actually, I was actually having lunch with Mark Lewis and we were doing the reciprocal narrowing and he was explaining it to me. And I said to Mark, and I said, well, Mark, if there's a reciprocal narrowing, there has to be a reciprocal opening. And he went, oh. uh, and so um, uh, that's how, that's actually how that idea really came about and became central. Um, so I, I and, and Mark has been pivotal in, and he was a colleague of mine at U of T, 
Uh, he's been pivotal in, in creating this dynamical model, especially of emotions in the brain, rather than a computational model, uh, emotions as dynamical systems that couple us to the world in a specific way, which of course is also significant within um, emotion. So I would recommend Mark Lewis also. Excellent. Thank you. Um, Nina, I'm going to move over to you, even though you're the third in the list, because you had something you wanted to share around this. Yeah. Oh, thank you, you, Gabriel. Go. Yeah, I wanted to ask John. Um, John, I'm, um, I'm a trauma-informed addiction coach, and I've, I've been in 12 steps for many years, and I'm kind of like breaking away from it. Um, but I, I would just be asked, because you talked about, um, this is about addiction, and you said about the the narrowing of the world and the identity and then the narrowing yeah. of the world and the identity. Yeah. Now, 12 Steps is really known for the connection. It's fantastic for like connection, but there's also that, what well, it could be seen as narrowing as in, I'm an addict, I'm an addict. As soon as you open your mouth, it's like, I'm an addict, I'm an addict. Yeah, yeah. And there was a lot of people get kind of stuck in that. Yeah, and then yeah. they're fearful of the outside world. They're scared to live in the outside world. They, they work, I suppose, the flow state in the meetings but they're petrified of going out into the outside world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I wondered what's your thoughts on that? I, I agree with you. And I think there's a strong analogy that needs to be explored more empirically between what you just described and what I described about people getting locked into the flow state within the virtual reality of the game. But yeah. that, that, although I'm flowing here, I'm narrowing in the bigger picture. And I think, I think you're exactly right. Uh, that you get into that. Uh, you, and you also see that same phenomenon in, uh, this is another area, in what's called spiritual bypassing, that people get into yeah. involved with the spiritual community and they're getting into all this flow state and all these wonderful experiences. Yeah, and about, yeah. Do, yeah, and they're all wonderful in there, but it doesn't translate, right, to the cultivation yeah. of wisdom and flourishing in the world at large. So I think a lot of these are relevantly similar enough that we, we should seriously think about gathering them together as a unified category and starting to investigate it empirically, scientifically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what I, I'm new to all this coaching, but I've been mentoring through addiction for like seven years. And my business that I'm setting up is a universal. So like as Gabor Mate would say that uh, he believes that, and I believe that addiction is coming from attachment and insecure attachment and yeah, that yeah. sense of belonging and good enough and stuff. Yeah, um, I, yeah, and he's right to do that. I mean. Most, some of you probably know this, most of, social, most of social psychology is going through the replication crisis. All of psychology is, but most of that comes from social psychology. Cognitive psychology is actually doing quite well, uh, right? But one of the areas, sorry, that sounds like bad news, but this is good news. One of the areas of social psychology that is, is not suffering the replication crisis, that's getting robustly like replicated is attachment theory. I mean, my, my, my friend and colleague at the UFT, Jeff McDonald, who's one of the world authorities on this, he calls attachment theory the way, the truth, and the life. <laughs> like, if, 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 you, if, if you don't know, and I don't mean just by sort of intuiting, if you don't, don't do the questionnaires and do some of the work, if you don't know what your attachment style is, you're seriously ignorant. I'm sorry, that sounds really aggressive, but you're seriously ignorant of something that is tremendously predictive of all of your relationships, your romantic relationships and your friendships. And what you're ignorant of, you're imprisoned to. And so tying this to attachment theory, I agree. I think that's bang on. That's really, I just want to comment on that because that's really interesting to me. I have someone in my 
family who I was uh, close to at a certain point in my life and then not as close to, and I'll protect this person's identity. Um, but just, just to say, um, this is someone who struggled with addiction and then, um, and then recovered and has been in recovery for many, many years. But the reciprocal narrowing around the substance abuse became reciprocal narrowing around the, as you're kind of pointing to Nina, the being in a particular community with a particular yep. identity and a particular sort of um, uh, lack of openness to, to the rest of the world. And um, I, 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 so this is a very interesting conversation to me about how we can get um, locked into habits of being and habits of seeing that um, imprison us, as you say, John, you, you put it really beautifully. Can I just follow up on that before we take another question? Because we should think about the opposite. So a question that I'm, I, I, I'm again, working on, I, I know it sounds like it's a bunch of things, but they all actually fit together, um, is what, like, what's the difference? Like, how do we do uh, sets of practices that transfer, that permeate through our lives and percolate through our psyche? Let me give you a story, and it goes to everything we've been talking about here. Um, so I'm a Tai Chi player. You don't do Tai Chi, by the way. You play it like you play music. I've been doing it uh, for like, uh, what is it, 26 years? No, 29 years right now. It's 30 years, I think. No, it's 30 because we're in 2021. Um, and I was about three or four years into the Tai Chi Chuan. And I, was, so, and I was doing it religiously, like, you know, two or three hours every day. And I was getting into the flow state because that's what it does. It was powerful. And that's about all I was getting. And that was enough for me because I was just enjoying the flow state. And I was in grad school, tells you how long ago, right? And um, my friends came to me and they said, what's up with you? And of course, I was really worried because in grad school, everybody thinks that everybody suffers from the imposter syndrome. I don't really belong here, right? And so they said this to me and I wondered, and I said, what do you mean? And they said, well, you, the way you argue is now way more balanced and you're much more flexible in your thinking. And, and you seem to be able to sort of flow with things better. And I went, oh, this stuff that I'm doing in this practice was unbeknownst to me, was permeating through my life and percolating through my psyche. And so part of what I'm trying to figure out, and I think this is maybe really relevant to coaching, is what are the sets of practices, the ecologies of practices that don't do the, 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 the siloing of people, but actually somehow are, re are designed so they really transfer well in appropriate and powerful manners. And, you know, and I think some of the world religions, Taoism is basically the religion of flow that's come up with these sets of practices that, that do permeate and percolate. And, 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 and given what, uh, that, that the previous uh, discussion uh, about addiction, I, I, I'm really interested. I don't have like really clear answers, but I'm really interested in what, what are the design features of the practices that silo and what are the design features of the practices that permeate and percolate and what's the real and reliable differences between those? I'm so interested in pursuing that question alongside you because I think that's incredibly relevant to coaching, right? So much of what we're doing is, is about um, finding practices and interventions that will help people make immediate application and change and transformation in their everyday lives. Mm. So it's a great question. Joel, did you have yeah, something I just, for um, us? I just actually would love to 
press both of you a bit further and, and, and wonder what might be some of the ingredients of those practices that that do expand that don't silo or uh, like like movement is something that um is i'm hearing underneath what both of you are speaking about but yeah i wondered if you could take a stab at that amanda or john both of you well i can tell you where i'm thinking about but i'm i want to put a big grain of salt on top of it like i'm I, like it's it's nascent right but there is a distinction um, in cognitive science between d- domain-specific and domain-general abilities. And domain-specific skills don't transfer well. Um, in fact, they'll interfere. Uh, so I had this problem with, uh, sorry, I, I used to golf, and my uncle had this problem because he played golf and played hockey. And at the beginning of spring, when golf started, he would try it, he would, his hockey sw- swing would transfer, and he'd be slicing all over the place. And then by the end of the summer, he had his golf swing back, and then he'd go into hockey, and he would keep like hitting the ice inappropriately rather than the puck kind of thing, right? And so you got, the, you got this weird thing happening. But there are also skills that are domain general. They, they apply generally to people. And, and I think you're right, Joel. They, they largely seem to be skills around attention and movement and the coordination of attention and movement. Um, and since, um, and, 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 and like, we know that the cerebellum has been exapted, right? Uh, you, sorry, I shouldn't use, well, exaptation is a process in evolution where something has evolved for one set of purposes, but then it's, it's pre-adaptively ready. It's almost perfectly designed for another purpose. I, I'm, I'm doing it right now. The tongue. What am I doing with my tongue? I'm talking, right? Many organisms have tongues and they don't talk. What happened was... The tongue has taste buds for poison. It's very flexible for moving around in your mouth to move your food around, and it can block your air passage, right? I can block things by moving my tongue. So it's perfect for speech. It's ready to go. That's how evolution works. It's constantly exapting things. We've got good evidence that the cerebellum has been exapted. You know, it, it originally evolved to do sensory motor coordination. But now what we're finding is the cerebellum is also the cerebellum doesn't care what it's coordinating. It will also try and coordinate, uh, you know, a- abstract things. It will try and coordinate different elements of uh, of attention. So, for example, uh, this is initially people found this very weird. When people are sitting absolutely still, close-eyed in meditation, they're, they're keeping their balance a little so they don't follow over. But other than that, they're not doing anything. They're not moving around. But the cerebellum is going crazy. It's <laughs> Why? Because typically what's happening is people are trying to get this very sophisticated coordination between attention and working memory and interception, right? And so what we, I think what we have to plug into is practices that are exactly at that point of acceptation in the cerebellum, like practices that overlap between what it originally evolved for, which is sensory motor behavior, but in which it still is engaged in doing things that are very cognitive. Uh, so for example, the cerebellum is highly active when you're navigating your physical environment, but when you're moving through concept space, it's also active. You, you, use, you exact the navigational skills into right, moving through conceptual space. Uh, see Tversky's book, uh, Mind in Motion, about all of that stuff. So this is a speculation on my part, right? But I think if we can find the domain general skills those are the ones that will permeate and i think the best place to look is at that overlap between the cerebellum's original functionality and the kind of things that are triggering it in an exaptive manner 
when we're doing more cognitive stuff. That's my best hypothesis right now. So I want to add to that because I teach about the relationship between the cerebellum and um, some of the emotional centers in the limbic system of the yeah. brain in the body equals brain course that I teach. And, and we talk, um, the place where I teach about this is when I'm talking about this, what I call the six elements of neuroplasticity. We talk about the role of relationship in changing the brain, the role of attention in changing mm. the brain. And one of the things we talk about is the role of movement with the cerebellum playing center stage. And I think part of what we need to do, like practices that make sense to transform our lives is to be in movement that is tied in some way to our um, emotional and conceptual interpretations of the world, yeah. right? So an example of that is um, a practice that might, uh, gosh, I'm trying to think of a, a a good example, a practice that where you get physically thrown off balance. So maybe you're walking on a balance beam and somebody gives you a, a, just a little gentle shove, not enough to hurt yourself, right? And, and they say to you, whatever the thing is that throws you off balance in your life. Maybe, you know, we were talking earlier about um, not being able to say to your, no to your boss, right? So coachy coach, and, and I'm the coach and with my coachee, you know, they're walking along a balance beam or even just along a flat line on the floor, right? And I give them a little shove and I go, you know, I've got this for you to do. And they have to physically right themselves and drop their shoulders and relax their eyebrows as we were talking about before and say, I, um, I can't do that. I'm sorry. I already have too much on my plate. Which of these things would you like me to trade off, right? So that their whole system gets used to taking action in a way that's really different from how they've taken action before. And there's a movement component to that. There's an emotional component to that. There's a kind of story-based linguistic conceptual interpretive component to that. And I believe and, and have witnessed that when we tie all those together and we really um, uh, kind of make it very situa situationally or contextually relevant, that real change can happen really, really fast, right? And I heard you talking about Tai Chi, um, which I myself haven't practiced, but um, uh, I think sometimes practices, and this is not in any way to throw any of these practices with long and rich histories and traditions, not to throw them under the bus. Um, however, I think the translation from your physical practice into your life you describe taking a deep dedication, two, three hours a day, right? And we just know not everybody's going to do, like, I'm into that, <laughs> but I'm kind of a weirdo. It sounds like you're into that. We might be the same kind of weirdo. Um, but, um, and so for people who are into that, I would never take it away. But for people who are too impatient for that, maybe we have other ways that are sort of very holistic and very, uh, contextually or situationally relevant, that we can start to move um, people towards very specific changes in their lives that then perhaps will flourish and take root in, in other ways. So I love what you said. It's cool that you're bringing, bringing out um, some teachings about the cerebellum too. Well, I think that's right. Uh, and I didn't mean to imply that everybody should take up uh, uh, three decades. <laughs> I wasn't <of> saying that. <laughs> um, this is relevant to, you know, uh, conversations I've had with he's a sports coach uh, Nick Winkleman and we've had ongoing discussions about inactive analogy uh, and metaphor keeps coming up the word metaphor is itself a metaphor it means to 
right, to bridge across, to transfer across. We're talking about how we facilitate transfer. Um, and he talks a lot about, about trying to find the enacted analogies that will give people those kinds of shifts you're talking about. Um, mm-hmm. And one way to pay attention to this right away is the way in which um, you're doing analogy all the time. For, for, for example, are you following what I'm saying? That's an analogy. We're more than mm-hmm. halfway through the course of this discussion, but we've hit some hard points, but hopefully we'll be open to getting a new way of grasping it, and then we'll all understand it. Do you hear all the metaphors? And do you notice mm-hmm. what I'm also doing? My hands are moving. I'm gesturing, right? And people, right, one of the things you can do is you can get people to step back and look at the gestures and the metaphors. And like you said, you can put them off balance by getting them to consider alternative metaphors and gestures. He talks about, he was trying to get this one person to run and they couldn't get it. And they knew what they were supposed to do, but they couldn't do it. And he said, like, think of yourself not as going like this. Think of yourself as when you're running, you're taking, you're an airplane. And then once you start to get like this, you're no longer running on a flat surface, you're running up a hill. And when the person tried that inactive metaphor, they got that switch that you're talking about much more rapidly as you're talking about. And they go, ah, and they got that kind of perspectival procedural participatory insight. And they knew how to be a runner in a different way. And so uh, his book, The Language of Coaching, is all about trying to find right, the enacted metaphors and the enacted analogies and get people to shift around them. So perhaps um, that's a place to look too. Uh, and, 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 try, and he and I are in discussion because we're trying to figure out how do we get that language of training from his world and the language of explaining from the scientific world to get, get them in concert together. Sorry, that was too Very much. Very cool. No, no, it wasn't too much. This is so, you and I are going to continue talking, but this is so great. And I hope, I hope all of y'all have enjoyed this as much as I have. Um, yeah. Joel, do you want to, is well, there anything just wanna... you want to say to close us out? Yeah, I just want to say that uh, a huge thank you to uh, you, Amanda, and to you, John. This has been an extraordinary conversation for me. Uh, Really, I can, you know, when I said, like, I want these conversations to be part of the evolution of the field, I feel like this really has set a bar for that for me. You know, and I can feel that in the energy that's here, that's coming through through us as a community and through you two as you you dialogue, you know, that's that, that aliveness, that energy. And uh, I can, I'm going to take that away with me uh, in the rest of the evening and tomorrow. So, so thank you for both of you. Um, and also, yeah, sorry, John, Amanda. I just to say thank you for having me and, and thank you for introducing me to Amanda. It's been fantastic. Likewise, likewise, likewise. It's been great. Thanks for listening to the podcast. I just want to take one minute to tell you about our live online coach training program, which is now enrolling called the power of embodied transformation it's really about how do you how do you wield the power of embodied change thinking alone won't work thinking our way towards transformation is not enough so much of what we've become our habits and tendencies our blind spots patterns of reactivity live in the very tissues of our body so in any transformational work we need to descend beneath the mind however brilliant the mind is so we can access this transformational arena that's what this program is going to teach you how to do it'll teach you how to take your clients on a somatic journey of transformation through an arc of transformation from how do you help your clients create embodied commitments how do you help them to 
recognize these embodied patterns that are living them in a compassionate way? How can you help them begin to open up their embodied life so that they can begin to embody new ways of being that help them thrive in what is most important to them? And also, we've got this extra module in there this year, which is about how do you support your clients who are coming to you and they're dysregulated? The pandemic's on. There's a lot of things going on in the world. People are dysregulated. Some clients are coming in displaying signs of trauma. It behooves us to become sensitive, trauma sensitive in these times. So what kinds of interventions can you make? How can you be as a coach that can help your clients in those moments? It's a lot in there in this program. We've got an incredible faculty. We have people like Richard Strozzi Heckler, the grandfather, the founder of the somatic coaching lineage, Amanda Blake, a brilliant teacher who can teach about embodiment and the neuroscience elements of it. We've got David Trelevin, author of Trauma Sensitive Mindfulness, Stacey Haynes, an alter star master somatic coach from the Strozzi Institute, Deb Dana, who is an incredible teacher of how do we apply polyvagal theory in the work we do with our clients. And Dan Siegel will be teaching. He's a real pioneer, founding father of this field of interpersonal neurobiology. So just a few more things I want to say. What do you get when you sign up? Well, you enter into this trajectory. There's 18 live workshops, 90 minutes long each, and they are very interactive and experiential. The teacher's going to be there doing coaching demos, answering questions for you, taking you through exercises. You'll get four integration sessions where you really practice what you're being taught. Everything is downloadable and transcribed so you can really immerse yourself in the learning and there are six bonus recordings pre-recorded featuring people like Peter Levine, Rick Hansen, Wendy Palmer, Stephen Porges, Bessel van der Kolk and Elizabeth Stanley. So how can you sign up? How can you find out more about it? Well you want to head to coachesrising.com forward slash power of embodied transformation. That's coachesrising.com forward slash power of embodied transformation. Enrollment is open now and the program runs from the 4th of March this year to June this year. It's 2022. Just a, a heads up again, if you're not on our mailing list and you want to stay in the loop about other things we create, then head to coachesrising.com. Put your name in the sign up box there. You'll also find some of our other offerings, our online trainings for coaches there. And... Just want to end by wishing you well and I'll see you again next time.